Um, well, it's going to be maybe a little different sermon for me. Um, there'll be some pictures up on the screen as we go through that I'm not even going to reference. They're just there for illustrative purposes. But uh, that's because the passage we're going to look at in the book of Jeremiah, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah here in just a little bit. The passage we're going to look at is kind of describing pictures of a relationship with God. Um, when, when my daughter, Kendall, who is 14 now, turned 14 last month, uh, when she was learning to read, she had this one book, and I had to go back and look it up yesterday um, because I couldn't really remember what it was all about, um, but I remember this book. It was, uh, it was called Ten Little Ladybugs, and, and I watched the lady read it on YouTube yesterday. Shara's nodding. You know the book? Okay. The lady was reading it, and I was watching it, and Stephanie was like, what are you doing? I said, sermon preparation. So I was watching it on YouTube, but um, Kendall remembered it when I asked her about it. It's a big picture book. And it only has a few words on each page, so you don't really have to be able to read it. The pictures on the page tell the story of the adventures of these ten little ladybugs. It's, it, it's pretty basic, you, but you wouldn't have to be able to read in order to know the story if you look closely at the pictures. But if you only look at one or two pictures, the first handful of pictures, you won't be able to tell the whole story. You won't be able to know the whole story. As the book progresses... Each ladybug gets lost one by one, so it's counting down is the point of the book, and it starts with ten little ladybugs on the page, and then along comes a bird, and now there's only nine. So in my mind, I assume that one's not coming back, right? Um, and then there are nine little ladybugs sitting on, oh, thank you, on a gate, and along comes something, a squirrel, and then there were eight. I don't know what comes to get them, but a squirrel comes, and now there's eight, and then uh, a duck comes, and now there's seven, whatever the order of events is, but it's going down, down, down. And if you don't follow through all the way to the end of the story, if you stopped in the middle, if you're like me, you would assume that this is kind of a harsh book for children. These little ladybugs are disappearing because they're being consumed. Um, maybe a bit harsh. But they're getting eaten or dying off. But if you do finish the story and you go all the way to the end, you see at the end all of the ladybugs come back together. But you wouldn't know that if you stopped partway through. But you can tell the story by the pictures. There's only a few words. Some books just have pictures as an accessory. They just shed some light on the story. But, but in that ladybug book, the story is actually told through the pictures on the pages. They tell the story... But you have to see every picture in order to know the whole story. And that's going to be illustrated this morning in this passage in Jeremiah. We want to see every picture to put together the complete story that we look at today. We're in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as you may know, was one of God's prophets in the Old Testament. He was called by God at an early age to be a prophet to God's people, to the nation of Israel. And you will remember how God used prophets to proclaim his word. Israel, as we've been studying, Jared's been preaching through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, Israel was ruled by judges, and then they wanted a king, and they had a time where they were ruled by kings, and, and God needed prophets to speak the truth to his people. Samuel, if you remember what we've studied more recently, Samuel was God's prophet that Jared has preached on with David and, and before that with King Saul. Samuel anointed Saul as king. Later on, he anointed David to be the next king. Samuel was the one who went and confronted Saul with his sin over and over. 
Samuel challenged the people, the nation of Israel, to follow God's laws. And after Samuel, other prophets were used by God in the same way as well. There was Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, many others. The prophets were chosen to lead the people to know God's word and to proclaim God's truth to the people who had turned away from him. They were often lonely men, these prophets, who often had to stand against the common belief of the world. They often had to stand in confrontation to the word of kings who had turned away from God and what he wanted. When everyone else in the nation chose their own way, the prophets were still calling the people to turn back to God. They called people to repent and to return to the only true God. The word prophet actually means genuine, genuine. And, and prophecy means to speak truth, to be genuine in what you say. That was the calling of these men, to genuinely speak God's word, his truth, to God's people. And the book of Jeremiah that we're going to look at was written by the prophet Jeremiah, one of the last few prophets in the history of Israel. We can find Jeremiah in the second book of Chronicles in the history of Israel. The kingdom of Israel had, by this point, had been divided. We aren't there yet, as Jared's been preaching through 1 Samuel. We're not that far yet, but shortly after the time of David, Solomon, then the kingdom is divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And at this point with Jeremiah, the, the northern kingdom had already disobeyed God for so long that he allowed them to be taken into captivity. They had been carried off into captivity. But Jeremiah was still a prophet of God to the southern kingdom. They still existed. They were known at that time as the nation of Judah. And until the end of the book of Chronicles, Jeremiah was a prophet for them. God used him to proclaim his truth to the people he wrote this book that we're going to look at somewhere around 600 years before the birth of Jesus. But before we get to the book of Jeremiah, I want to look at how the kingdom of Israel comes to a close at the end of 2 Chronicles in chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and this is a passage I've read before, but it always strikes me as a powerful word. Here's what it says in verse 15, the Lord the God of their fathers, sent word to them, his people. He sent word to his people through his messengers, his prophets, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they, God's people, they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words, and they scoffed at his prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. If you jump down to verse 20, explains, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, the people who were left, who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to Babylon and to his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the nation of Israel comes to a close here. Jeremiah is prophesying in this time, trying to get the people to repent, to turn back to God. But because the people of God ignored his word and his warning through the prophets over and over and over for years, God's judgment finally came upon them. The city of Jerusalem was ransacked, and the people who lived through the attack of Nebuchadnezzar were taken captive. They were hauled off to Babylon. And as we look at the book of Jeremiah, we see the prophet Jeremiah paint us several pictures of Israel's disobedience, what led to this happening, Israel's disobedience and God's judgment. We're going to take time this morning to look at several of those pictures today. If you only look at a few of the pictures, if we stop too soon, you'll never see the whole story 
that Jeremiah wants us to know, that God wants us to know. You'll miss out on the message as a whole. And we don't have time to go through the entire book of Jeremiah or his whole ministry. But in these first few chapters of the book of Jeremiah, chapters 2 and 3 specifically, we're going to see a very important story about God's love and our response to it. And hopefully as we look at these individual pictures, they'll come together to paint a portrait of God's love for us this morning. The first picture that we see as Jeremiah describes this here, he paints a picture of God's provision. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 2, and Jeremiah writes this, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first, fruit, first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah gives us first this picture of God standing with his young bride. As a bride, you loved me. God is standing with his young bride, the nation of Israel. God says, I remember how you looked at me when you were young. I remember how you trusted me to take care of you. I remember how you longingly looked in my eyes. I remember how when I promised you a land that you believed that I would provide. I remember that I provided for you manna and quail in the desert. I remember how you had nothing, but you trusted me for everything. Do you know that feeling? Do you remember that love? I know specifically for me, I can recall standing at the front of a building like this 21 years ago now, 21 years ago, I remember, 21 years ago, and watching my bride enter the back of the room. I still remember the lump in my throat and the tears that came to my eyes in that moment. And I remember promising myself that I would do anything for that young girl. I knew that I was willing to give her everything that I could. And I knew that I would protect her with my own life. And that's God's perspective in this passage as he looks at his people. He's saying, do you remember the devotion that you had and my promise to you, do you remember the young love that we share? Do you remember when you were willing to follow me through the desert? Can you remember how I smashed those who tried to harm you? When I brought you out of Egypt, I protected you and I cared for you. And when someone did hurt you, I punished them. I destroyed them. I made them pay for sinning against my bride, my love. Can't you recall the way that I led you and cared for you and gave you what was best for you? Why don't you remember the way that I have protected you and provided for you? As we look at this first picture of the love of a young husband and wife, let me ask you this. Do you remember what drew you into a relationship with God in the first place? Do you remember the excitement of learning about who he was and what he had done for you to win you. Do you recall what God has done for you? Or have you become too distracted by your life and by your own desires? Do you remember the love of your youth and how God picked you up when you were at your lowest point, when everyone else was willing to throw you away? Remember the love of God who was willing to give his life to protect you and provide for you. And the first picture is this picture of God and his young bride, and the love between them as he provided everything they needed. But the second picture that Jeremiah paints here 
he shares with us is of Israel, and it's a reminder of us, and it is of our and their disregard for what God had done. This starts in verse 5 in, in Jeremiah's book, chapter 2, verse 5. This is what the Lord says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols. They became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? The priests did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. And this is a picture of the nation of Israel and of our disregard for God. Not caring of what he had done for us. Israel still worshipped God. They still celebrated his deliverance from Egypt with their feasts. They still acknowledged him with sacrifices and with priests and with a religious system. They still knew of this God who had been their first love, but they worshipped these other worthless idols. You remember, they had built God a home in the time of Solomon after David. They built God a home. They gave him a physical temple. They gave him a building to dwell in, to live in. And so now God had a physical address instead of being omnipotent and omniscient as a presence that he had disregard for God and for what he has done. It's not ignoring God completely or telling God we want nothing to do with him. This is a picture of God in a box. He's comfortable. He's where we want him. This is a picture of us fitting God into the mold that we want him to be instead of allowing God to mold us into who we need to be. And as we see this second picture, this represent, representation of our disregard, let me ask you this. Is your God bigger than your box? Or are you simply fitting God into the corners of your life that you want Him to have while you keep the rest for yourself? Is He changing you into who you need to be in, in your obedience, or are you using Him for your convenience? The third portrait that Jeremiah paints, the picture that he shows, we get to see here, is, is a picture of God's possessiveness, of His jealousy. God's jealousy. Look, at me, or look with me at verse 11. Has a nation ever changed gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns. They cannot hold water. You may remember in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus said, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. And, John, and God is saying here in our passage that his people have turned away from that living water. They've turned away from the spring of living water. But what's worse is they have turned away from the living water to drink from a dirty, broken cistern. What he's talking about here, the cisterns they dug, they were necessary. They dug cisterns to hold rainwater for long periods of time. It was crucial for them in that time to have physical cisterns that could collect water during times. They held water even during times of drought so that there would be water for the necessities of life. But, but these cisterns they dug were not for fresh drinking water. They were full of stagnant water that was only used when needed. The water from a cistern was kept for weeks and months, and it was used to bathe in, to water crops, to let livestock drink. So why would anyone choose to drink of water from a cistern when there is a spring of fresh water, of abundant fresh water 
available. But God says you choose to dig your own cistern so you can keep drinking the same dirty, stagnant water instead of enjoying the fresh flow of water that he wanted to give them. Even worse, he says, they created cisterns that couldn't hold water at all. He says, I have so much. God says, I have so much that I want to give you, but you turn away. You choose the filth of this world instead of the life that I give you. You choose to drink the world's water that is covered in film and full of bugs and debris and waste, even when I want to give you a fresh, cold drink of living water. You see, this picture of God's jealousy, this is a picture of God's jealousy of his possessiveness. He says, why would you turn away to something that cannot fulfill you through these other things? I can give you so much more than what those things have to offer. You just have to give up the world and ask me to be refreshed, ask to be renewed. But instead of looking to God, you look to the world for fulfillment. Instead of turning to God, we search for life in things like money and power and alcohol and sports and education and sex and pornography, a house, a car, a job, diamonds, friends, Facebook, phones, political parties, or social justice. But as we look at this portrait of God's possessiveness, we should be able to hear him cry out, don't turn to these things of the world for fulfillment. Let me be your joy. Let me be your life. Let me be your living water. What are the broken cisterns that you have been digging? Where are you pouring your heart and your energy in to places that will never satisfy your thirst, your craving? What things are keeping you from truly pursuing living water? What things of the world are keeping you from focusing on and spending time with God? The next picture that Jeremiah paints then is one of our depravity, our depravity. We've seen God's provision. We've seen God's possessiveness. We've seen our disregard, and now we see our depravity. This is our sin. This is our unfaithfulness. Look at what Jeremiah writes to Israel and to us in verse 19. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds, and you said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree you lay down as a prostitute. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. This is a graphic representation of Israel's and of our unfaithfulness to God. You can't wash the stench of this sin away. Israel didn't remain faithful to the only true God. They, they never stopped wanting what the world had. These idols the rest of the world around them served, and they never stopped pursuing love from other gods and from the world around them. No matter what you do or say, you can't scrub the stains of this prostitution away God is saying, you can't claim to have been faithful to God alone when you have spent your life chasing your own pleasures and what the world says will make you happy. These, these verses here are a reference to some of the specific idols that Israel had been worshiping. Israel had become trapped in, in worship of these idols devoted to sensuality and sexual desire. False gods that we've talked about before like Asherah and Molech and Baal often required sensual rituals. And these rituals were often connected to hilltops and specific trees that he's talking about. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. They wanted to fit in. 
They wanted to have one hand holding on to God and the other grabbing hold of the world. Are we any different, though? Are we any different? And God is crying out to his people. He's trying to remind them that every time they seek the gods and the pleasures of the high hills and trees, they turn their back on him. Every time they seek what the world tells them is important, they become the enemies of God, like the book of James says. There's no way to devote yourself to personal desire and sensual pleasure or worldly wisdom and still please God. He is a jealous God, and He desires to be our only God, our only love, the only thing we pursue. And as we observe this picture of our depravity, our sin, and our unfaithfulness, let me ask you, are you faithful to the only true God, the living water? Or are you prostituting yourself out, as He says, for your pleasure? Are you seeking God and His will daily, or are you seeking what the world says? Is important. Are you seeking your next high on a hilltop or under a tree somewhere or behind a closed door? Are you trying to please men rather than please God? Our unfaithful hearts are a disgusting stench to God and we cannot cover it up or wash it away. The next picture, though, from Jeremiah, the next picture we see is of God's judgment, his prescription for our sin. Look with me at verse 27. They have turned their backs on me, turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. This is a picture of God's judgment, of his prescription for our sin. He says to Israel, I punished you, I corrected you, but it was in vain. You don't respond to my correction, to my warnings. As a parent, many of us are parents here, we can understand what God is feeling. Have you ever had to take your child aside and say, you need to stop this behavior, you need to quit acting like this? If you have kids, the answer to the question is yes, you have had to do that. And here is why, because you're going to get hurt this is not appropriate, or whatever the case may be. You explain to your child that what they're doing is wrong, and then you explain to your child why the behavior is wrong or harmful, harmful what the consequences would be. You explain what the proper behavior would be for that situation. For example, let's say your kid got a certain Christmas toy, and he's using a screwdriver to put the batteries in his new toy because none of them come with batteries in them. But he takes the screwdriver, and instead of using it to put the batteries in the toy, he tries to stick it in the light socket, in the electrical outlet. So you say, stop, you don't want to stick the screwdriver in the outlet. If you do that, you're going to get hurt. It's harmful, and you won't like the result. You need to use the screwdriver for what it's intended for. And then you need to put it away so you don't get hurt. You love your kid, you're going to try to protect him, you're going to stop bad decisions, bad behavior, explain the consequences of the bad behavior, and you give them proper behavior to follow. You correct your child because you love them. But what if the next time your child had a screwdriver, you saw him trying to put it in the outlet again? Now your kid is one of two things. He is either dumb or he's really selfish. And he doesn't care about what you have to say. He doesn't care what you think or say. He thinks he knows what is best or what is entertaining to him in that moment. So you hide all the screwdrivers 
But then your kid starts putting scissors and paper clips and whatever he can find into the outlet, anything he can find that fits in the outlet, he tries to put there. If your child had disregard for everything that you did to provide for them and to protect them, you would have to question their love and their loyalty to you. But it's even worse in the picture that Jeremiah has painted for us of a husband and wife. That's where God is at with Israel. He says, I provided for you as my bride. I protected you. I called you my own when no one else would. No one else would choose you. But you have been unfaithful to me. And so he says here in this passage, why are you blaming me for your problems? I tried to correct you. I tried to warn you. I I showed you what was right. I tried to stop you from doing what's wrong. I told you that your unfaithfulness is wrong, harmful, and destructive. But you didn't listen. You thought you knew best. You put your trust in yourself and in these idols that you created instead of me, the creator. And I love the line that he uses in here. God says, when the people turn away from God, but when they're in trouble, they cry out, come and save us. And God says, where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Why can't these things that you created save you? Why can't the things that you love to pursue more than me protect you? Why do you only turn, your back, turn back to God when you are in trouble? Why can't the things that you have invested all of your time and money and effort in defend you? This is a picture of God's prescription, His judgment And it's this, it's time for you and I to answer for our sin. He tells Israel here in this passage, you're on your own. Let your other gods save you this time. You turned your back on me. And there are going to be consequences for your unfaithfulness. You may remember as we have studied through the history of Israel that God constantly warned them about their disobedience and their unfaithfulness. And God here finally says, enough. Enough. Your sin is disgusting. And it has trapped you, and I can't stand the sight of it or the smell of it anymore. You're on your own. It's the only way that you'll learn that I mean what I say. There is no remedy other than to face the consequences of your actions. And for this, Israel was being taken into captivity. For us and our unfaithfulness, that chapter is yet to be written. The next picture that we see here in Jeremiah is one of Israel's response And so often our response to sin, God says, here's the prescription, here's the judgment, and let's look at what they have to say back. Verse 35, yet in spite of all this, you say, I'm innocent. God's not angry with me, but I will pass judgment on you because you say I have not sinned. This is our denial. This is our denial. This is where we claim we didn't know any better. Or that it was someone else's fault or we claim that we didn't do it. God isn't mad at me because he's a loving God. He's a a God of love, joy, peace, and patience. He wants me to be happy. He doesn't mind my sin. It's not that bad because it was only once or it was only a small one or it wasn't as bad as his or I didn't even really do it. It was just a mistake. Taking those things from the office to use at home is okay because I didn't get a raise this year. I needed a new phone so God understands that I couldn't put my tithe in the offering this week. I just had a few with the beer, a few, few beers with the boys so that I can be a better witness to them. They don't listen to me if I'm not willing to. God will understand that. God knows my heart. God knows my weaknesses. He knows I can't help it. We justify and deny our sin. But Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. May it never be. 
We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? God doesn't understand or justify our sin, and He does not accept it. Our denial does not change that. God says that because of our denial, because we justify our sin, He will pass judgment on us. The Hebrew word here in the text for pass judgment simply means to sentence or punish. I find it interesting that God told his people that he was going to punish them because they say they have not sinned. He didn't say he was punishing them because of their sin alone, but because they could not admit that they sinned. They denied that they had ever turned their back on him. It's important to see in this picture of our denial that it is our sin that breaks God's heart. Our sin breaks God's heart, but it is the denial of our sin that invokes his wrath. It is an unwillingness to admit our unfaithfulness that brings about God's punishment. It was true for Israel, and it's true for America, and it's true for us individually. And as we look at this picture of our denial, let me ask you this. Is there something that you have been hiding? Is there something that you have been holding on to that you won't let go of? Something that you won't admit is a problem. Is there something that you need to confess? Is there something that you need to give back to Him? Our our sin has broken God's heart. But He's waiting to hear you own your sin. He wants to hear you say it's your sin, and then He's willing to take it. The longer that you hold it and hide it and deny it and justify it, the more it festers and the bigger it becomes. And God's anger, His wrath, His punishment are brought on by an unrepentant heart. So we've looked at these pictures of God's protection, God's possessiveness, His jealousy, His punishment, or His prescription for our sin. We've also seen from us our disregard, our depravity, and our denial, our denial of our sin. And we could easily stop right there and we would have enough to think about, but we want to see the entire picture as we talked about, and there's one more picture to see before this story is complete. Right now, it might feel like all of the 10 little ladybugs are gone. They've all been eaten, and this is a bad story. And if we never look at this last picture, then we won't be able to see how our story ends. And the last picture that we're looking at is that of God's promise. Look in chapter 3, the next chapter over, starting in verse 12. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and I will bring you to Zion. This is a picture of God's promise, His mercy. You remember that receiving mercy means not getting the punishment that we deserve. And God promises us His mercy. He promises His people, Israel, Judah, and us, that His anger will not last forever if you acknowledge your guilt, if you admit your rebellion, your unfaithfulness. The word here for return that he says it it means to turn back. It's the same idea as the word repent, to turn from what is wrong and turn back to what is right, to what God says is right. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. 
It says to repent and return to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come. God is saying to his people, admit your sin, your guilt, and turn back to me and I will prove my mercy to you. Let me show you what forgiveness is. Repent and return and experience my grace because there's a day coming and there's a God-man coming, my son, who will take the punishment of your sin and his name is Jesus. And he will be your only high priest. He will be your mercy seat and you won't need an ark of the covenant or a temple, physical temple for me to dwell in. You won't need to make physical sacrifices for your sin because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been made, the blood has been shed, the sins have been forgiven. You don't need to keep chasing idols and worthless gods on every high hill because I will take you in my mercy to the mountain of Zion. And this last picture is the one that completes the story because without it, we're still lost. We're still prostitutes. We're still separated from God in our unfaithfulness. This last picture is the picture of God's promise, His mercy given to us through Jesus Christ, and God says, if you believe in Jesus, if you're willing to admit your sin and repentance, you will know his mercy. That is God's promise. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe there's a reason I chose this passage in this sermon when I had to come up with something yesterday. And I, it's because I believe that the call to repentance and obedience has never been more needed in our culture, in our nation, than it is right now. I'm not sure that there has ever been more disregard for God's law, specifically in America, than there is right now. There are plenty of people around who still claim to know God to know a God of love and forgiveness. But the same people think that God is okay with sharing a relationship with Him without complete commitment and faithfulness to Him. We want to claim faith without being faithful. We want to experience God's goodness and His grace without being willing to take up our cross and follow as Jesus commands us. We want God's blessing without obedience to God's word. We like to have one foot in the door of the church and, and the other foot walking the same path as the world. We think that God's okay with just a claim to know him, to call on his name, to be one nation under God without actually being under God, faithfully following him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And I don't think there has ever been more disregard for God's law in our culture than there is right now. And I don't know about you, but that scares me. Remember the words that we read at the beginning in the closing chapters of 2 Chronicles chapter 36? They mocked God's messengers. They despised God's words. And they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. It was too late. They showed disregard for God and His law until it was too late. The judgment was set. The same idea is used in the time of Noah before God sent the flood as judgment on the world. It says that the world was full of wickedness. 
And that word there, wickedness, means they did not care about God's law. They did not concern themselves with what God said was right. The same word is used again in Matthew chapter 24, when it says the world will be full of wickedness, disregard for God's law, when Jesus will return to judge the world for their sins. Disregard for God's law. I think we find ourselves in the middle of that right now in our nation. There's no regard for God and His law and His word. The only way to receive the mercy of God for our unfaithfulness, individually and collectively, is through repentance. The only way to receive God's mercy is through repentance. Return to the Lord. I want to go back to Second Chronicles real quick as I end. And you've probably heard this before, but after the dedication of the temple, King Solomon, God appears to Solomon, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. God says this to Solomon, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Repent and return. And God's mercy is his promise to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the prophet Jeremiah and what he spoke to your people so many years ago and what he speaks to us today. We thank you for the message that even though we have been unfaithful, we have shown disregard for you, for your law, we have lived lives of depravity, we have denied our sin, Lord, and yet you still are willing to forgive if we will simply repent, if we'll simply turn back to you and put you back on the throne of our life. Lord, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus Christ. 